cloud computing has been popular for less than 20 years. Large software companies have existed for much longer than that. If your company was started before the cloud became popular, you probably have a large data center on your company premises. The shorthand term for this software environment is on-prem. Deploying software to your own on-prem servers can be significantly different than deploying to remote servers in the cloud. In the cloud, servers and resources are more standardized. It's often easier to find documentation and best practices for how to use cloud services. Many of the software vendors who got started in the last decade created their software in the cloud. For example, readme.io makes it easy for companies to create hosted documentation. Their early customers were startups and other cloud-native companies, and all of those companies were happy to consume the software in the cloud. As time went on, README found that other customers wanted to use the README product as a self-hosted on-prem service. README needed to figure out how to deploy their software easily to the on-prem environment. It turns out that this is a common problem. Software vendors who want to sell to on-prem enterprises must have a defined strategy for making those deployments to on-prem infrastructure. And those deployments are not always easy to configure. Replicated is a company that allows cloud-based software companies to easily deploy to on-prem infrastructure. Grant Miller is the founder of Replicated, and he joins the show to discuss on-prem, cloud, and the changing adoption patterns of enterprise software companies. Grant Miller, you are the CEO of Replicated. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much for having me. On this show, we have talked about on-prem software many times. On-prem can mean many things. It typically means not in the cloud. And this will happen because a company usually gets started before cloud computing, so they already have servers. Sometimes it's a company that doesn't want to move to the cloud because they have sensitive information. There are plenty of reasons why a company might operate its own servers. Describe how on-prem infrastructure affects the software development of a company. Yeah, sure. So we actually have a slightly different definition of on-prem, and we call it modern on-prem. And for us, what what we mean by modern on-prem is basically we're sort of defining the cloud as this combination of two things, right? The cloud would be both infrastructure as a service and software as a service. And so what we see modern on-prem is basically uh, the ability for an enterprise end user to take a cloud-native application, so something that could be deployed as SaaS, and instead deploying it into private resources that they control. So that could be in a full on-prem data center where they actually racked and stacked the machines, or that could just be the AWS VPC that's owned by the enterprise. And how does that on-prem infrastructure affect software development? Like how do on-prem companies develop software relative to companies? Because I think a lot of the listeners are just used to building on the cloud. And how does experience compare to an on-prem company? Yeah, sure. So the difference would, from our perspective, really is around, you know, building something that's very portable. So interestingly, these worlds have really merged a lot over the last, call it five or 10 years. And the reason they've merged is because the technologies that we use to deploy software have really shifted from this sort of like manual operations and bash scripts 
into systems uh, like orchestration and scheduling platforms such as Kubernetes. And so from our perspective, a modern on-prem application is actually just one that has most of the operational knowledge sort of baked into its, its orchestration and scheduling system and then becomes portable so that it can be installed into an Amazon VPC, into a Google VPC, or into an on-prem data center, basically anywhere that there is programmable compute and storage at the, uh, on the other side. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more generally about on-prem infrastructure. So in cloud infrastructure, there are lots of, of random failures. So the software is orchestrated to be resilient to these random failures. On-prem infrastructure seems a little bit more different because it it's for specific companies and it's you don't have to deal with this super high volume of bursty workloads. And well, the workloads just vary. I mean, it, it, I guess it varies from company to company. But I'd just like to know a little bit more about the nature of the infrastructure at your average on-prem company. Do on-prem companies have issues with these kinds of failures at scale? So, you know, this is, again, it's kind of one of these things that's changed a lot over the last five or 10 years, right? And the reason it's changed is because the lines have really blurred between what is on-prem infrastructure and what is cloud infrastructure, right? So you've seen this recently with some of the cloud providers even releasing sort of on-prem versions of their infrastructure tools. So, you know, Google offers GKE on-prem, Microsoft has had Azure Stacks for a while, and then you've seen... You know, things like uh, like Amazon released their, I think they call it Outposts more recently. And that's an example of like an infrastructure sort of like backend becoming available to be deployed anywhere. But even before that, right, like VMware, compute was programmable that was in the data center. And so as compute became programmable in the data center, these sort of like this fault toleration has really become much more of a global concept than it is just a cloud concept, right? And I think even things like, you know, PKS, which is Pivotal's Kubernetes service, or, you know, before that, what they did with Cloud Foundry, taking a lot of these same concepts of cloud, you know, development and deployment and bringing it to any environment, right? So, you know, ultimately, you know, the AWS infrastructure is on-prem for Amazon, right? Like Facebook, you know, their infrastructure is on-prem for Facebook. Google's infrastructure is on-prem for them. And then for our perspective, it's just about who's actually controlling the software that's running on those servers, right? So when we think about modern on-prem, what we're talking about is the ability for a uh, application vendor, you know, think about as a SaaS company, packaging up their application as a cloud-native application. Uh, So that's using Kubernetes and sort of these primitives that we've defined to create truly reliable applications, and then delivering that to an enterprise who can install it into uh, on-prem data center, a VPC, and run a fully private instance of that application. But instead of having to operate the application so manually, like they would have done 20 years ago, they're actually leveraging all of that automation and orchestration and scheduling that's baked in to something like Kubernetes manifests to actually operate the application. So what you see now is the ability for, instead of just like sending along the the bits, you're actually sending this sort of like know-how, the automation to actually like deploy and scale and self-heal that application when it's running in the end user environment. Now, you mentioned with Kubernetes, the importance of a platform as a service layer, even at the on-prem companies, although I guess Kubernetes is kind of a layer beneath that. 
But whether we're talking about Kubernetes or OpenStack or Cloud Foundry or Mesosphere or OpenShift, there are these software tools that give a on-prem infrastructure environment the feeling of being a cloud where the operations team can set up and, and manage a Cloud Foundry or a Mesosphere and give in, give instances, give server resources to that layer and then the developers within the company can request resources from that layer. And it can feel to some extent like a cloud provider. So we do have this this on-prem infrastructure that makes things feel like a cloud. And we also have some on-prem companies that are adopting the cloud. So it's it, it is obviously this heterogeneity of different on-prem versus cloud versus hybrid cloud deployments that we're seeing more and more of. Tell me about the difficulties that some of these on-prem companies have when it comes to software installation and procurement. Like if I'm a developer at one of these on-prem companies, there are challenges to me getting whatever kind of software I want running on the infrastructure at my bank or insurance company or healthcare company whatever company I work at that has this on-prem infrastructure, what are the challenges that I encounter as a developer when I'm trying to get whatever software I want to do the job on my on-prem infrastructure? Yeah, sure. So we kind of talk about the evolution of enterprise software in this regard. So you know, when you look at what enterprise software meant 20 years ago, it was basically that some organization would like create these, you know, jar files or war files, and then distribute those to enterprise end customers. And then the end user, right, the enterprise IT admin, was responsible for racking and stacking machines, setting up the power supply, the operating system, you know, everything else, the runtime, databases, installing those packages, all the dependencies, and then keeping that all managed. And they were doing that in a very manual way, right? So like some system went down, your SQL server had a, had a blip, you know, your DBA would SSH, you know, into that machine and like make some, make some changes, right? And so that created this very operationally intensive sort of like overhead for these enterprise IT admins. And so as a result, they weren't running a whole lot of enterprise software applications. You know, maybe you had your ERP and your CRM and your exchange server, but like that was about it because you had to have you know, IT teams scheduled around the clock and, you know, sort of like follow the sun support in order to make sure that those systems stayed up because they were so manual, right? And so what you saw when Benioff introduced the SaaS model is that that really took that operational overhead. And instead of every enterprise IT org repeating the same work to keep the services up, it centralized that work by the to the application provider, right? The SaaS company. And so that model became pervasive for the last, you know, 15, 20 years. And, you know, what you've seen since then is this sort of a Cambrian explosion of, of SaaS applications. So there's a different SaaS tool for everything you might want to do in the world, right? It's created this huge productivity gain because, you know, I no longer have to write every piece of software. I can just go use some service and I don't have to think about running it either. So over time, what's happened is that, you know, those applications have created, you know, now I think the average enterprise has over a thousand different SaaS applications you know, in their organization. And what that creates is this huge amount of surface area. So if you think about a single organization, right, using a thousand different vendors, what you've done is you've taken all this data and you've basically replicated it across all these different environments. And so the security posture of your your weakest vendor actually becomes the security posture of your data. And so if that data is remotely important, if it has 
customer records in it or you know now with things like gdpr if it just has like an email address in it of an end user then you as the person who has sent that data to that application vendor you know you sent your information off to grammarly or notion like you know these like kind of modern hip SaaS companies they're now responsible for that data but you're responsible to your consumer who put that data into your application and so that situation has caused a fairly untenable you know, environment for a lot of IT admins, right? They see, okay, we're responsible for this data that our customers give us, and we're sending it off to all these other organizations. And so we need to make sure that they're being secure with how they handle it, right? But that type of vendor assurance is very hard to get on a company that's, you know, 100 people or 200 people, you know, sure, you can, in our perspective is you can get the level of security assurance that you need from the big three cloud providers, right? That's why we differentiate between infrastructure as a service and software as a service, because we think that enterprises can trust Amazon, Google, Microsoft to actually manage the hardware and, you know, use the services that they provide. But then when they want to, you know, deploy that, you know, uh, Grammarly, you know, tool that's going to key log all the things that your employees are typing into every text box, Instead of sending that data off to the Grammarly servers, well, why not have that be sent to a private instance that's managed in your VPC? And then every time a company like Grammarly would update, you'd get an update notification and you could apply that to your infrastructure. Now, Grammarly doesn't do this, so you would have to use some other application. A lot of the tools that we actually power are very like specific developer tools. So our platform is used by folks like CircleCI and HashiCorp uh, and NPM. Sysdig to package up their cloud native applications and then license and distribute it into these large enterprise environments where it can be installed uh, privately into these VPCs. And what that does, that gives the end users control over all of that data. So they don't have to think about adding another vendor who then might, you know, uh, they need to check in to make sure they have PCI compliance and their, you know, whatever data they're going to put in there. They're never sending that data to the vendor. The vendor is sending the application to the enterprise where they're going to run it in this private instance. All right. So you're describing why I love your company. And the example I, I like of one of your customers is readme.io, which is run by Gregory Koger, Koberger, who was one of the earlier guests on the show. I really like Greg. He's just a really nice guy and uh, he's super smart and just kind of hilarious. So he, he has holds a special place in my heart as being an early guest on the show but let's say I run readme.io. I'm Gregory. Readme.io is a is a SaaS company that provides readmes. So if you have developer-facing software, whether they are internal developers or external developers, which is a lot of different companies, you need readmes. I don't know if you've ever deployed your own readme to like whatever, like GitHub pages or whatever, but it's like not a great process or like uh, I'll give a free plug to readme.io. Like you should, if you're a developer and you're listening to this, you should at least know that this piece of SaaS exists. Of course, readme.io was a YC company. It was started in the age of selling to SaaS company, to other SaaS companies, to other modern uh, post-cloud companies. And he got traction, the company got traction, and eventually they got to the point where, well, there are on-prem enterprises that are ready to buy my really nice README software. So when I get to that point, if I'm Gregory and I've spent years building a sales model and an integration model 
that targets companies that are on the cloud that are not these quote unquote on-prem enterprises. I've got a bunch of software that I've already built that's it's cloud ready. What do I need to do to change my software to be able to deliver it to on-prem customers? Yeah, sure. So so Greg actually wrote an amazing blog post about this. And I think it's titled like how we went on-prem in a week, right? And so the the real key innovation here is not even that much about replicated. It's about it's about orchestration and scheduling and cloud native applications, right? So as soon as you start to adopt these patterns for cloud native, you know, applications, what you're able to do is have a manifest that describes all the different components, containers, et cetera, that you can then spin up and install into you know any environment just like you have staging or production you're, you're not installing that by like manually doing things you're just running the automation again and so that same manifest can be used to distribute your enterprise customers now oftentimes what happens for companies like readme you know is that they were leveraging sort of some of these third-party api hosted services themselves so maybe they were using something to send emails out and so instead they need to to kind of have like this little workaround in their code that says like, well, if it's an enterprise deployment, then make sure that you collect the SMTP information from the IT admin, and then we'll send emails through the SMTP server that's provided by the by the enterprise. And so there's these little tweaks you have to do along the way that sort of are enterprise integrations, right? Another thing you might see is that, you know, readme, maybe you have to create an account with your email address and a password. But, you know, in a large... IT organization, they'd actually would prefer to manage users through a single sign-on service, maybe LDAP or Active Directory. And so, you know, you'll have to make some changes for that. Now, we try to offer, you know, we call these like enterprise helper features, right? Things like an LDAP and Active Directory integration. So instead of you having to build out all the infrastructure, you just plug into some APIs that we created that are available when you're deployed on-prem. So we kind of distribute these with your application to make those integrations easier. So, you know, the key would be, for someone like readme, just be containerized, use use Docker, use Kubernetes. Then from there, abstract away some of these like, you know, proprietary systems. If you're using Redshift, that's going to be hard because that's not a portable, you know, it's not a portable service. It lives in AWS. So you might want to to shift on to an open source alternative. Or, you know, if you're using RDS for Postgres, you might need to use the uh, the public, you know, containerized version of Postgres, or maybe you'll select something like CockroachDB or Yugabyte, which have, you know both have Postgres compliant APIs, but are container, you know, kind of uh, cloud native databases. And so you'll need to make some decisions around your application architecture to actually leverage and make the entire, you know, piece portable. Yeah, and so this is what you offer to Readme and companies like Readme is this. I guess you may call it a framework or a deployment platform or a series of steps together with software for getting you and your company to a place where you can offer software to these on-prem enterprise customers. So if you have a product that was built for cloud customers, it's this is a way to get your software amenable to an on-prem deployment. Yeah, exactly. So if you had a multi-tenant application, or even the other interesting thing is what we've seen are companies that have a traditionally on-prem product, you know, maybe they are that jar product that we talked about earlier, you know, that Java application, and they want to be able to do both SaaS hosted and on-prem deployments. 
Well, the best way to do that today is by using cloud native architecture. And so they'll re-architect their applications in order to, to offer you know, the SaaS hosted version. But then once they've done that, right, there's a company called Jama Software based up in Portland that you know, was a really early customer and example of this, where they had you know, a traditionally on-prem product, had been doing a hosted version for a while, wanted to be able to leverage cloud native architecture, but they knew that if they did that, they would have this massively complex architecture to distribute down to these end customers with all these microservices. And so they wanted to mask that complexity, but still leverage it. And so that's really where Replicated helped them sort of in a similar fashion, but you know, from a just a more modern way to do an on-prem deployment. Does this assume that the on-prem company can always consume a Dockerized or Kubernetes ready version of an application. Like, aren't there some on-prem infrastructure companies that that aren't ready to run Docker containers? Yeah. So we really have two different solutions for this, right? We think about when you're distributing to customers who are, you know, kind of cloud native themselves. They maybe they have their own Kubernetes cluster that they want to install your application in. We actually just released a really great product to sort of facilitate that, right? Where instead of them deploying the application as a software appliance, they can actually deploy the application as a fully like integrated with their existing deployment pipelines, right? So this is the ability to take these manifests and uh, put them into a Git repo and then use some type of GitOps deployment to get those into your cluster. Um, And then anytime that the software vendor updates the application, our, our technology is sitting in the background. It detects that update. It pulls down the, the latest version, takes whatever custom deployments that the enterprise wanted to apply, and then actually merges those together and then makes a pull request into that same Git repo with all of the latest updates into it, right? So this is one way that you can deploy to these super advanced cloud-native you know, companies. But on the other side, you know, is the 95% of the market who maybe isn't really really familiar with Kubernetes or Docker. And they just want sort of an easy to install and manage solution. And that's what the core replicated product has always done is it's sort of been a one-line installer, one-click updates. The end customer doesn't have to know anything about Docker or anything about Kubernetes. They just sort of run this bash script from their workstation or from the server. And then they are you know, walk through the setup of this application, the provisioning of additional hosts, everything else, until they have a fully working private instance of that application, you know, in their on-prem data center or in their VPC. I want to know some about what it was like to build this product. Because if I think about, so so as you mentioned, some of the the customers you have that use Replicated, readme.io is it is it on the simpler side of the examples i think you also have things like like a sysdig like you mentioned which is monitoring software or lo- or i think or logging software or like security monitoring software i think you've got hashicorp which makes like deployment and distributed systems software were there some engineering difficulties you encountered when you were trying to make a, a platform that allowed such a diverse range of people to deploy to on-prem environments? Yeah. I mean, so we've been doing this for four years. And so when we first started, you know, Kubernetes was was not really even a thing yet, right? And so we had to write our own orchestration and scheduling system around Docker containers. That was, you know, like many, many companies have done this. It's a lot of work. It's hard. You know, we focused on building a solution that would 
really not, it wasn't focused on like this huge scale. It was really more about like, how do you manage the complexity of doing like a five or 10 node deploy? So that was a, that was a big challenge. You know, at the same time, one of the challenges of, of the replicated platform was when we first launched, like no one was really even familiar with, with Docker or Kubernetes or any of these, or these concepts. So we were introducing, you know, the idea of using containers and orchestrations to a lot of a lot of companies and we'd have to help them along that journey in order to get more cloud native you know uh, ready so you know since then we've totally swapped out that original scheduler and now we rely primarily on kubernetes as the orchestration and scheduling platform underneath the hood we also have compatibility with docker swarm because you know a lot of folks have composed files for their applications so we wanted to make that an easy onboarding step but you know, the challenges really come with make this a solution that can deploy lots of different, you know, services. And then the, the actual really complex part, because honestly, most of the most of the complexity around deploying these solutions is solved by things like Kubernetes or Docker Swarm. The complex part is how do you make sure that the end customer environment meets all the requirements, right? So the thing that I think a lot of folks don't realize is that, you know, Kubernetes is when it's managed as GKE or, you know, AKS, there's a lot of services and and connection and things like storage that are happening under the hood that are not just raw Kubernetes, but are actually part of that offering. And so we needed to reproduce, you know, basically a out of the box distro of Kubernetes that, you know, had things like, you know, networking solved. So we used Contour and used KubeADM and we used, you know, Rook and Ceph. And so there's just a lot of additional components you had to deploy other than just raw Kubernetes. So so we've talked about your company. We've talked about the problems of on-prem deployments. We've talked a little bit about the engineering. Let's take a step back. Why did you start working on these problems of on-prem deployments? Yeah. So my co-founder, Mark, and I had started a separate company about seven years ago. And that company was pretty quickly acquired by a publicly traded SaaS company called LivePerson. So they kind of created the idea of live chat support on the web. And so we ran the mobile team there for two and a half years. But while we were there, one, we learned a lot about the enterprise software ecosystem, sort of how everything works. But the other thing that we saw was there was demand for even a company like LivePerson that had been a publicly traded SaaS company for 20 years. There was demand for an on-prem version of the, of the software. And there wasn't really a great solution for distributing that, right? Someone, you know, maybe wanted to package a physical appliance. Maybe somebody else thought, it, you know, we could at least do a VM. And Mark, my co-founder, right? He's really the, the architect and, and, and true brains behind Replicated. He recognized that with the introduction of Docker, that there would be this new level of application portability that we could leverage to actually distribute these applications into these end user environments. And we sort of realized that that problem was bigger than live person. So we left that company and decided to start Replicated as the you know sort of way to bring this, this concept to, to bear for the entire market. And in that time, sort of recognized that well, you know, there's this this big opportunity here because, you know, we, we were kind of talking about it before and kind of referencing like financial services and healthcare and, and these companies that were born before the cloud as the primary users of like, quote unquote, on-prem software. But as it turns out, there's actually a lot of very modern companies that prefer these private instances of software. So, you know, if you look at it, a company like Coinbase is actually kind of known for this where they don't want to use like every, you know, SaaS hosted solution because 
the data that Coinbase is holding is worth billions of dollars, right? And so if they're even just giving you the email addresses of their users, that's a that's potentially a security breach. And so you see companies like Coinbase or even like Google and Facebook and Airbnb and Uber who would prefer private instances of other people's SaaS software to be deployed into their infrastructure rather than trying to, you know, make sure that that vendor meets all their compliance and and uh, and security requirements. If you can deploy a private instance of the software and you know, and, and it's the same operational overhead as using the SaaS application, why would you ever send that data off to the SaaS vendor when you can protect it and keep it into your own VPC where that data already lives? Coinbase Coinbase actually uses replicated, right? Yeah, so Coinbase, you know, went on the record a couple of years ago talking about how they use several different applications through replicated, right? So they'll use our technology to deploy private instances of these different applications into their own generally probably a VPC. You know, I I don't I have details on where they're deploying those applications, but uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a VPC more often than not, because most of the time, these end customers are not actually deploying it into a physical data center, but they're using their own AWS VPC or Google VPC, and then just deploying private instances of the software there. That way, it's, you know, it's kind of preventing the application vendor from from ever seeing the data. VPC, that's acronym for virtual private cloud, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's a term that, that uh, Amazon introduced at first. And then Google has, I think, you know, everyone's kind of, you know, started to use it. But the idea is you kind of talked about earlier where on-prem data centers look more like the cloud. Well, VPCs make the cloud look more like on-prem data centers, right? And they do this by by saying all the connections and all the uh, that happen internally are not going to be exposed to the public internet. They're going to happen over private IP addresses and you know through you know encrypted communication on these like on these private networks. And so what that does is it actually facilitates you know a different model of computing where the services don't have to be exposed to the public internet. You can actually still use something like if you've ever if you uh, followed up much around the Beyond Corp sort of model of deployment in, in, in for like Google's deployed? Yeah, yeah. We've done a, a couple shows on zero trust networking sure. model. So it's it's funny when Google launched that that Beyond Corp blog post or paper, or whatever it was, a lot of people thought they were that they were saying that Google's only going to use SaaS applications. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. What Google was saying is they're going to make sure that uh, there is a publicly exposed access point. So an access proxy for every one of their internal applications. Now, those internal applications still all run on private networks, but there's a tunnel between those private networks and that access proxy. So they're not putting you know, their databases on you know, the, the public internet with these ports exposed. Those are all on VPCs. The application layers are all on these VPCs. It's just that there's an access proxy that sits in front of these where you can use that to then get authentication into. So you can get this sort of coarse-grained access control from, you know, from the internet and then get into the VPC from there by using things like, you know, a YubiKey or, you know, other username and password based authentication. What's the connection between zero trust networking and VPCs? That the, so like the the whole thing about zero trust networking and, and the way that BeyondCorp described it was that you wanted to be able to get rid of the VPN, right? And so no more VPN. Instead, every application that they use has a like is exposed publicly on the internet. And instead, they're basically using 
instead of using VPNs to secure access, they use these access proxies. So Cloudflare has a public version of this that they call Cloudflare Access, which we pair internally at Replicated with another Cloudflare product called Argo. And what this does, it takes our Kubernetes cluster where we run all these private instances of applications, you know, like analytics servers and BI tools, and then exposes access to those only through the internet, but you have to come in through this access proxy that, that Cloudflare hosts for us. And so you're accessing all of these services through the internet, quote unquote, but there's but the services are actually living in a in a VPC. And so what it does is it enables a company like Replicated or really any organization to not have to use the publicly hosted SaaS multi-tenant versions of these applications, but instead deploy them privately and then still secure them and make them globally available by using something like the BeyondCorp model. Okay. Okay. I think I got it. So Replicated started with this this um, product, the vendor product, allowing people to give on-prem customers a version of their software that could be deployed on a VPC or in an on-prem environment. That was your first product. And then you moved on to a second product. And the second product is a little bit more subtle, which is replicated ship. And I think to understand replicated ship, we have to talk a little bit about Kubernetes configuration. So when we talk about the configuration of a Kubernetes deployment, what are we talking about? Explain what Kubernetes configuration is in more detail. Sure. So there's kind of this broad world of Kubernetes configuration. There's a really amazing white paper written by one of the core contributors to Kubernetes, this guy named Brian Grant. And Brian wrote a paper called I think it's like declarative configuration management for Kubernetes. Yeah, declarative application management in Kubernetes. And what that kind of the paper basically does, it gives an overview of all the different options you can use for configuration management, right? You've got models like templating and you've got inheritance and you've got these patches and overlays. And, you know, sort of the state of the art in the Kubernetes ecosystem to do this sort of configuration management is to use a product like Helm, right? And what Helm does is you know, it has a lot of different features today in sort of the Helm 2 world. Helm 3 is going to be a little bit more specific. Helm 2 really basically gives you a way to, to uh, describe all the different components that you have in your cluster and template out the different things that uh, you might want to have someone else, um, you might want to change per environment, right? The reason this matters for Replicated is because oftentimes Helm charts are the best way to share amongst the community or from an application vendor to an enterprise that wants to run a private instance of, uh, of an application in their own Kubernetes cluster. It's a way to share the application in sort of this like package that can then have different values applied to this values.yaml file, right? So I think you can think about Helm as a fairly analogous solution to what we've seen in the past for configuration management, if that's Chef and Puppet and Ansible, where you identify the options that you might want to configure and then you use these values files to actually override those values per deployment. So these kind of like customer supplied values are collected in this values.yaml. And so that's kind of been what most people do for configuration management. And specifically when you're deploying a third-party component that somebody else wrote that Helm chart for, right? The challenge is that when somebody else writes configuration management, I think if you've ever used, you know, Ansible Galaxy or Chef Recipes, 
you kind of know that, well, the first thing you end up doing is oftentimes just forking that the sort of canonical upstream reference and then making the changes to make sure that it fits into your workflow, right? So you maybe you're just copying and pasting, not even actually forking it, but you're taking the exposed, you know, the, the, the raw sort of chart and then you're making your own custom edits in line. And then now you have this, this fork of that sort of configuration, but it works in your environment. Right. That's a is that a fairly common pattern you're familiar with? I wouldn't say I'm familiar with it because I'm like not a programmer. <laughs> but I mean, at this point, like I don't write much code, but it, it sounds consistent with what I have heard from various interviews. Yeah. So this is like a very common workflow, right? Oh, you find, you know, so Helm is this great tool. I mean, Helm like came on the scene. It was super needed. Like it, it added actually filled a lot of the gaps in the Kubernetes like uh, platform overall. It did things like upgrade and rollbacks and just it's, it's a really powerful tool. But over time, you know, the Kubernetes API has gotten a lot more powerful and it's kind of like there's some overlap now between that functionality. And then you've also just started to see where, you know, again, everyone is copying and pasting these these Helm charts and making their own version. And so the, the biggest challenge that creates is that when you take a forked Helm chart, and now the upstream updates, you're basically trying to manually reconcile the difference between the version that you created and the new version that came from upstream. And that's this like complex manual toil type task, right? Where you're like, okay, I got to figure out what changed and what did I do to mine and what, what's, what's updated in the new one. And then, so people often don't even do it. They just like, maybe they'll update the images, maybe they'll do something else. But this becomes a thing that, you know, th- like the cluster operator ends up being responsible for this entire forked Helm chart. And so we never thought that was a great experience. And then Brian's paper, you know, beyond just actually describing all of the sort of existing solutions for configuration management, actually lays out a fairly comprehensive overview of a new way to do configuration management that's declarative. And it sort of comes out that he wants this system of patches and overlays to work. And so this, we started, we really love this paper and we started working some of the concepts into what we were building at Replicated. And then Google open sourced a project called Customize with a K that actually implements almost this entire paper, right? And so what Customize did that's so, so important, so different is that it said, look, like you can, you should have configure, you should be able to take an upstream configuration. And then instead of needing to like, copy and paste it and then make edits to it directly, you should be able to edit it or like customize it by describing a patch. And a patch is is like a, uh, a little snippet of YAML that together with this tool can actually be used to traverse the application, you know, Kubernetes manifest, and then make changes inside the manifest. So it's sort of done as like a, sec- you're basically separating out the configuration changes that you might want to make to that application manifest and writing it separately. And the beauty of this system is that by separating those things out, anytime the upstream actually updates, you never changed it. So you can just update it directly and then your patches can still traverse the new version of that of that updated manifest and apply the changes that you want to have. So to get at the core of what you're, what you're saying is there with the the way that many people have ended up in their Kubernetes deployments and their Kubernetes Git management is that they are hitting merge conflicts or branch conflicts with the way that they're updating their configuration files 
because the configuration files will end up diverging from the project that they're that they are uh, based on, some open source project that they're based on. And then when the open source project has an update, they get a merge conflict. Yeah, exactly. And the reason you get that merge conflict is because it's basically impossible for a Helm chart to describe all the different like little things that a that a cluster operator might want to configure about that chart. Helm chart, by the way, this is a description of a distributed systems deployment, like a, basically a distributed application that would go onto your Kubernetes cluster. Yeah, exactly. It's a way to like kind of, they call it the package manager for Kubernetes, which is a really powerful concept. If you can package up distributed applications into a single sort of artifact or something that you can then use to to deploy it, that's really amazing. But the challenge with this is that as the chart maintainer, I can only like make configurable so many different options. And the, you know, so then as a someone who wants to operate that application, if I want to make any changes, right, if I want to use other parts of the Kubernetes API that are not templated in that original Helm chart, or if I want to add in and integrate a CRD, right, which are these uh, custom resource definitions that are really popular way to extend the Kubernetes API, then what I have to do is basically copy and paste or fork that original Helm, Helm chart, make all my you know updates, and then now I'm stuck managing that entire Helm chart, right? And that's that's been just how the world has worked for the last however many years. But it doesn't have to be, and it's not and it's not like that anymore with this new tool that Google introduced, this new sort of methodology that they introduced with Customize, and it's actually being integrated fully into Kubernetes. So you'll be able to just kube cuddle apply any folder with a customization.yaml in it. And it will just know how to natively traverse the application manifest with these updates that you want to make. I just want to reinforce this a little bit more because this is like people are, I'm sure there are some listeners right now who are like, what the heck is, I'm so lost right now. This is some, you know, even people who are, who are working with Kubernetes. So like, let's take an example, like Linkerd. So if I am deploying a service mesh like Linkerd, onto my Kubernetes cluster, I might want to customize it. I might have some custom configuration changes that I want to make to Linkerd. And then later on, Linkerd is going to be updated and I'm going to have some issues there. Can you just explain why this different form of configuration management would be useful for a project like Linkerd? Yeah, sure. So basically our, our perspective is that Helm charts, so if, you know, the Linkerd Helm chart should describe sort of the basic way to get Linkerd up and running in your cluster, right? the sort of canonical way. However, what you see over time is that these Helm charts end up expanding. So if you look at Prometheus, I think the first Prometheus chart, the values YAML was maybe 415 lines. Uh, today, it's over a thousand lines. And the reason for that is because as the community has started to use it, more and more like custom configurations, right? So you want to access different parts of the Kubernetes API, what you have to do, like you say, I want to use, you know, pod security context, which is a sort of not super common, but like maybe 10% of the of end users might want to use that as a, a thing they define. Well, if that's not in the original chart, then first thing I'm going to do is fork it, add pod security context into my deployment. And then I'm going to manage that. Maybe I'm going to make a pull request into the upstream with that change into it. And so you know, what Prometheus has done is accepted a lot of these, you know, make this configurable type pull requests. So they're constantly managing all these pull requests to make some new 
um, attribute configurable. And they're doing that because basically, it would, as it turns out, that like basic deployment of you know a of a project is not what people end up using for their production deployment. They end up having, you know, maybe that's what 90% of it is, but they end up adding their own custom 10% because they do things a little bit differently. And so as everybody adds their own custom 10%, the, the you end up with this huge uh, and complex, you know, Helm chart. And the way to avoid that is say, well, instead of accepting all these upstream um, pull requests to extend and expose, you know, templated versions of all these different components, we should have everyone add in their own customizations, you know, themselves and manage those customizations externally. So that's what Customize tries to introduce. And then Replicated Ship, which is the open source project that we created, uh, really operationalizes that. So it says that it's going to help you create a you know, one of these customization files by by pulling in a Helm chart, templating it out all the YAML, giving you deployable Kubernetes manifests that you can then click into and then make little updates. And we're going to like pre-calculate all the patches for you. And then we're going to save that in a way that you can deploy it to your cluster straight away. And if you want, we'll actually watch the upstream repo. And anytime the upstream updates, so let's say the upstream Prometheus chart updates, we're going to download those updates. We're going to take your, your patches, merge those on top of the updated version and then make a pull request into your private Git repo with all of the the updated manifest and your custom configuration still preserved. So you're going to get these automated pull requests every time you, uh, you update the application or the application's updated from upstream. This is not something that's only useful for on-prem companies, right? This is like for anybody who is doing just a, who is using a lot of different open source projects within their Kubernetes cluster. Yeah, exactly. So this is a this is a tool that we created basically for any Kubernetes cluster operator. Ultimately, our vision of the world is that we will all run private instances of applications, maybe hundreds or thousands of different private instances of applications. And in order to run those, we need a system like Kubernetes to to actually manage the operational overhead and to make sure this is all automated, right? And so in order to have a world where there are thousands of private instances, both you know open source and commercially supplied applications, well, we need to operationalize this better. And we need to operationalize this in a way that you know I can add these custom configurations without needing to fork everything and take over all this operational management. And so SHIP is designed to really focus and reduce the amount of YAML that a cluster operator is managing, right? Because if you fork the Prometheus Helm chart, you're taking over, you know, like tens of thousands of lines of YAML. And if you just apply a patch, maybe you're going to manage, you know, 100 lines of YAML, right? And so the amount of like actual, you know, YAML under management for a cluster operator who's who's forking, you know, Helm charts versus one who's using you know, replicated ship plus customize is going to be orders of magnitude different, right? So you mentioned a few interesting things there. I, I want to understand your your vision for what your company does because you've got two products right now. And if I squint, I can see some similarities between them, some overlap between them. The first one is, like we said, this product for allowing SaaS companies to have on-prem software the second one is this configuration management tool. What is the business, like what's the long-term business vision? What's your vision for what Replicated becomes? Yeah, so these two are actually very tightly linked. 
And the reason they're tightly linked is if you can imagine the current vendor solution, right? Like you, you need a way for applic- like proprietary applications to package up and distribute into the same kind of workflow, right? So if we think about ship as the future of replicated and a you know cluster operators are using it to, to automatically manage the third-party components that they're deploying into their cluster, those third-party components can be you know these open source solutions like Prometheus, but they could also be you know a private instance of Gradle, right? So Gradle is actually an application vendor that uses Replicated and then distributes their applications through the Replicated ship platform. So their end customers can run Gradle Enterprise in an existing Kubernetes cluster next to a lot of other different applications that are deployed in that cluster. And the way that they distribute that and license it and keep it updated and have all these release notes come through is by using the replicated vendor tooling in order to distribute it down to them. I see. Let's start to wrap up and and talk more about the broad world of, I guess, how infrastructure is being reshaped by Kubernetes and the cloud. These are like these two forces that are so strong, they're having, and obviously, Kubernetes and the cloud are are related to one another, but they're really reshaping how software is procured. They're changing the power dynamics of different companies. Is it hard to be a vendor in this space? There's a lot of noise, but there's also a lot of money being spent. What has been your experience building a business in the midst of all this change? Yeah, I mean, so change is great for startups, right? Because what happens is all the traditional vendors kind of get shake, you know, shaken up and it creates these new opportunities for a startup to come in, find a solution to problems that haven't been solved in the past, right? Like the idea of automated pull requests for every time your third-party applications update is only possible because we have a Kubernetes API that's well-defined and understood, Right. And it's only in that it makes possible the idea of this declarative configuration management that Customize provides. And so, you know, there's all these changes that are happening in the market. And if you're if you're paying close enough attention, you can actually see the ones that are really creating these like platform shifts, right? And these platform shifts are what new big businesses are built on. So you know, we look for those all the time. And the reason that we're constantly paying attention to what's going on in the Kubernetes ecosystem is because it's moving so fast and it's creating so many different opportunities, right? It's really shaking up, you know, everything that's happening in infrastructure. And we think the next thing it's really going to shake up is, you know, is the SaaS ecosystem, right? I mean, the, the funny thing is that like, a lot of people, a lot of investors really believe that, you know, that SaaS has a bright future because, the amount of software spend on on-prem software is still enormous, right? I think uh, the SaaS ecosystem is maybe $100 billion a year, and the on-prem ecosystem is about $350 billion a year. And so uh, they, you know, most investors would tell you that those, wor- those worlds, you know, it'll become SaaS everything at some point. And replicated, what we see is that's, you know, it's probably more shades of gray than it is black and white, right? And so you know, we see a world where Folks like Coinbase or you know large financial institutions or governments or really just any company that knows that their data that they have is important. We see a world where they can run you know these private instances of applications in a Kubernetes cluster secured through a BeyondCorp model, 
done in a way that it doesn't take any additional like operational know-how from their IT team to manage a thousand different applications that are deployed into that cluster, right? And it's just automated in a way that it's running. You know, maybe there's a there's operators and CRDs that, that are acting behind the scenes to help, you know, keep databases going, you know, in a, in a more self-healing way. And so we see this sort of new frontier of enterprise software and you know we're, we we know that the the demand is there from the end users right like there's a huge amount of of spend that's happening in this space and we know that not many other folks are really focused on what does it take to enable application vendors to to make this transition and to go from you know uh, maybe a traditionally saas model to be able to offer you know these private instances for enterprises to deploy in these sort of more complex environments right and so that's what replicated really focuses on and you know that's what we're trying to help bring to market all right well grant it's been really fun talking to you and i think you got a bright future in in your business it's a really interesting company i think the space it's so big it's like people i've seen people try to size the market of like cloud native or cloud software or kubernetes market I don't think it's like sizable at this point. I think it's just going to grow and grow and grow and grow. It's so big. There's so much opportunity. It's so true. It's funny. I think you you get that asked that question a lot, right? Like, what's the size of the market? It's like, well, I mean, like, you know, the economy, I don't know. Like, what's the answer? It's like, you know, it's like, you know, if if software eats the world and Kubernetes eats software, right? Like you, you need, you need automation, right? And it's, it's funny. I always, I always tell the story around why Kubernetes matters so much because, I referenced the Twitter fail whale. Did you remember when when Twitter like they used to see the fail whale all the time? I do, of course. Yeah, and like that was what ten years ago, right? And that was this big, successful Silicon Valley company, and they couldn't figure out how to deploy reliable software, right? I mean, hell, Salesforce still puts out like service interruption updates on their website that they're going to take their site down, right? Like we ten years ago, we didn't know how to build reliable software like really no one did we didn't have the primitives well well, i say no one but one company knew how to build reliable software and it's why if your internet you know feels flaky you go and you ping google.com to see if it's up right see if your internet's working you trust that google is up more more likely than you trust your internet is up right and so what happened was google took you know this system they wrote all this software in order to uh, to make their their services reliable, and when they did that, you know, they called it Borg, and it was basically container orchestration. And then they open sourced it as Kubernetes, and they gave this primitive to the world that now allows anyone to create truly reliable software. Right? I mean, they wrote the book on it, the SRE book, Site Reliability Engineering. Right? And with this primitive, so you know, the the kind of circling back to Twitter, they took the concepts that Google was using and they built their own version of it. They called it Mesos. Right. And they kind of like, you know, they, they took the Mesos project and they, and they really, you know, used that internally. So they used a, a solution that was container orchestration and scheduling in order to solve their farewell problems. But now more and more companies, you know, have access to, to build truly reliable software. And that's going to just change what's, what, how we think about and how we use software. Right. So uh, the opportunity is just enormous. Okay, Grant. Well, great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Jeff, thanks so much. Have a good one. Wow.